Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut. I'm an ASC cinematographer, and I wanted to kind of talk to you about something. Getting started in this industry is almost impossible. And my wife, Lydia, and I, 14 years ago, created a resource called Filmmakers Academy to make it possible. We saw a lot of gatekeeping in this industry and not a lot of sharing knowledge. So we wanted to pull back the curtain, give you confidence, teach you all the necessary skills to be an amazing, successful filmmaker, and package it all on this online resource that you have at your fingertips, on set, on your phone, on your laptop, whatever it is. So we're going to give you $50. So if you go into the show notes, click the link, and hit the promo code FAPOD50, you're going to get $50 on your first year of an all-access membership. And I cannot wait for you to join our immense and immersive community at Filmmakers Academy, where we network, we share knowledge, we just bond as this huge filmmaking uh, resource to ignite your creativity and push you beyond your boundaries. I cannot wait to see you in the Academy, and let's get to the podcast. Hello, hello. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another Finding a Frame. It's a beautiful Sunday here at Filmmakers Academy. We have two amazing filmmakers, cinematographer Charlie Seroff and Dave Cole, colorist. How's it going? Good. Good. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Well, you guys just came off an amazing release with Smile, doing awesome in the box office. How's that feel? <laughs> it's great. It's just cool to know that so many people are going to the cinema to, to watch it. You know, like it... Um, I, you know, I think it's sort of getting out there now that it was meant to be a streamer. Um, it wasn't intended for theatrical release. So when they decided to do that, it was exciting. And then now to see it do well, it's great. Like it, it's just, um, yeah, to be a, play a part of that is, is awesome. So, yeah. You know what I really loved about this movie? And it's something that it, I'm assuming both of you have seen on social media is the whole like marketing campaign, hiring the talent to stand at sporting events. Yeah. That's awesome. Paramount yeah. does a really good job with marketing, especially for horror films. And today to be able to see that type of success, I really like that. Yeah, you know? yeah that's crazy. The whole baseball game stuff and yeah. everything like that. And yeah. Seeing all the billboards everywhere. And yeah, that's did you, great. Did um, you know that was going to happen or no? Not to that extent. Like we knew, no. I mean, we like when we were in the, the, the color grade, that was when Parker was taking a lot of phone calls with Paramount. They mm -hmm. were like giving him updates and he'd come back in sometimes and be like, oh, this is going to happen. Like it's going theatrical. Or, and he, I think we, I heard a few things about um, what was going to happen with uh, Fantastic Fest in Austin and some of the murals that we're going to paint. And, you know, and I'm quite new to this. So it's like really <laughs> exciting for me. Like Dave has been around, like done, you know, been a part of like so many amazing films. Um, so it is all a bit new to me right now. So I'm a bit like, but it, but it, it was, <laughs> It was yeah. also fantastic because it was going to be yeah. a streamer for so long. Yeah, I right. mean, we were in the middle of DI when we found out. Yeah. So it was a pretty quick turnaround for them to create this amazing viral marketing it's thing. True. It's not like you're in pre-production for the movie and they're already thinking ahead. It's like it wasn't... Yeah. I mean, I'm sure they would have thrown up billboards or whatever, sure. but yeah. not to the extent of what they did. So it's, it's it true. was... Credit pretty to them. unique. Yeah, yeah. credit to it's them. They've got smart. some good minds there that, are, that are know how to get a film out there. So, yeah. Yeah, let's talk about the numbers, which is crazy. It was a $17 million budget, 
first week it grossed about $22 million. Yeah. And you both said something before we got into this meeting. How much is it currently sitting at today? I think it's 137 worldwide. And that's, you know, not we haven't even finished the third weekend yet. And so it's, it's doing really well. Yeah. So, that is you know, awesome. yeah. yeah. I mean, hopefully that's um, a sign that more of these films should go to the theater and... Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they, every every platform has its place, of course. But I, yeah, it's just exciting. And it's that. great with the, with genre films to see it, yeah, at a cinema with an audience. I mean, that's part mm-hmm. of the fun, yeah. Of you know, I mean, movies are good, bad, whatever. And when you watch them at home, they're still good or bad or whatever. But that shared experience, especially with a genre film, yeah. there's there's something that's. Absolutely. You know, and that's why I think, you know, the numbers are showing it because yeah. people want to share that, fun. you know. Yeah. yeah. They want to be scared. They want to have a laugh. It's sort of got all of that. So. And I feel like horror films are arguably in the best spot they've ever been. We're in like this really intellectual place. We have Ari Aster, obviously Parker Finn now coming yeah. onto the scene. They're doing things that don't feel tropey. They're taking the traditional sense of what that genre is and applying a lot of thought and meaning. It isn't, not that 80s horror isn't amazing. There's a lot of great slashers. You have Sure. like some of the greatest directors coming out of that period but i love what's being done today and even barbarian which is another film that accompanied during this release both smile and barbarian showed how strong the writing element is in that world yeah. and cinematography and the color direction it is something that people need to start looking at is not just oh it's just a genre movie oh there's not like characters that can fit into this world no there are really like really strong messages. I felt like Smile really played into a strong message dealing with like mental illness and a lot of that. And I'm super excited to get in and talk about all of that. But just to give a little background so our audience knows, you're both from Australia. And I'd love to talk about where you both started out. Uh, And maybe we start with you, Charlie, just what your youth looked like and how you became a filmmaker. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, so originally out of Australia, I was born in a smaller city called Wodonga that's like a few hours outside of Melbourne, but then spent a lot of time in Melbourne growing up and family was there and stuff like that. So that's where I went to. um, I I did go to film school, but like that was after um, I was, I didn't go straight to college after school. I just wanted to work and travel. Um, And where I'm going with this is like one of my biggest passion through like high school as a teenager was skateboarding. And uh, like so many of us, like, I feel like we could get into filmmaking through that because the video side of things and the music side of things play a big part in the videos. And this was before it was an Olympic sport. And, um, you know, to be able to the the main media that we would get from it were the skate videos and magazines. But quite often some of the um, creators of those would create content that like little short films and skits and marry them up to music and video art pieces and stuff and that had a big impact on me um growing up and then you know I bought a camcorder and then and cinema and film is always something I was like obviously right into like all Mm -hmm. of us like of course I watched a lot of movies and I always thought it'd be cool to be a part of that process but didn't really understand what it was at that point um so yes I think video production from skate films kind of got me really interested and that's what made me want to go to school and then you know people like spike jones and harmony korean and there were those sort of guys that came out of it that you were like watching going wow they're making movies now um they did all these cool skate videos things that i was into and now they're like you know making adaptation and all these like really interesting like intelligent funny awesome you know pieces so that was really inspiring. And then, yeah, went to school. And then um, out of that, I started just doing whatever I could. I worked in the camera department as a second AC for a while. But while I was doing that, I was shooting like documentary, lifestyle TV shows, like cooking shows, like all sorts of things just to sort of get my hands on a camera and pay the bills. And um, and then directors that I started uh, working with at school um, and some good friends of mine that I grew up with even, um, started directing you know music videos and short films and some small commercials and you know had aspirations to do feature films and things like that and 
I would shoot them. And then, you know, they all kind of married and met in the middle. Like the, I stopped sort of doing lifestyle TV. I stopped working in the camera department when some of these other um, productions that I'd start, shoot, you know, shooting for directors that I, that I came up with uh, got a little bit bigger and we mm-hmm. were able to, and yeah, I guess that's where I actually became more or less like a DP. Like yeah. the other things were like camera operating and AC'ing and stuff. And then they all sort of married and then I- Did yeah. it take some time for you to know that you wanted to be a cinematographer at first? Were you considering maybe being a director or what like really brought you into that specific discipline? Sure. Um, to be honest, I it took a while to even know what a cinematographer mm-hmm. was. Like the even the schooling and the, the way that, that I came at it through skate videos and stuff, I didn't really know what the role of a DP was on say a feature film and stuff and the departments that they have to manage and and that type of thing. Like that was all quite foreign to me. So no, I didn't really want to be a cinematographer in the beginning. I, I loved camera and I loved making things and I liked that. I also wasn't really that into being a director. There might've been a moment where I was like, oh, like a filmmaker, that's what I should do. I'm, I'm a, you know, create like a, you know, maybe I should wear a director's hat, but it did, very quickly I realized that I was more into you know, um, helping other people tell their stories and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. And I really, I love cameras and lighting. And so, yeah, I wasn't until maybe at school, um, I started shooting short films for some of the directors there. And I got a little bit of a reputation for being like passionate about it and, um, you know, maybe okay at it. So they were like pushing more of that to me. And then you sort of build up this sort of confidence of like, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I can do this. I'm, I'm into camera. That's, that's Mm -hmm. my kind of thing. And then, and then as I learned more about the industry and, with different experience and stuff like that that I got I kind of got to learn more about the role of a cinematographer and then I was like yeah that's what I want to do that's cool that's right and you were saying that you eventually transitioned into a bigger market which was Melbourne what was that what was the reason and how did it ultimately like lead to where you are today sure I mean I really started in Melbourne like I Mm -hmm. was there as a teenager like I like that's where I went to film school and that's where I worked after high school and stuff like that. So I, there wasn't really much going on in Wodonga or Aubrey. Like they're, they're like cities that sit right next to each other. There was not really a film industry there. So it really started in Melbourne. Um, and like, yeah, like, and your question was how I got to this, like basically how. I yeah. Yeah. What was it like working in a bigger market? I guess, I guess um, since you were already there, there was really, yeah, not a that was kind of it. It was like yeah. Melbourne, Sydney. I didn't there wasn't, sure. yeah, it's a smaller country with a much got smaller it. population. So there isn't really markets, you know, the other cities, mm-hmm. there's a bit going, I mean, Queensland has a lot now Like we were talking earlier, you know, that a lot of big international films are there and, um, there's certainly activity in the other States, but Melbourne, Sydney are the more of the media hubs. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. um, yeah, that's where, that's the city. Awesome. Started. Yeah. Well, what did your life look like? Dave? Well, I always wanted to work in film and TV, but as Charlie said, it's a pretty small country, you know, in terms of number Mm -hmm. of people and also just relatively for the film industry. I mean, it's not a huge film industry. They output quite a lot, but it's actually pretty small. So I thought being pragmatic, the chances of going through film school and then getting a job after it probably was slim. So it was in the just as IT and infotech and computers were really kind of starting to take off. So I went, I'll do computer science because I had an interest in it. So I actually did a computer science degree. And then in the last semester of my university course, I actually decided to slacken off the loading and split it to span two semesters. And in that time that I wasn't working as hard, I just rang heaps of like tv stations and post-production houses and it was like audio places visual places just anywhere that would have me in i said look i'll be a fly on the wall i just want to sit in the back you know plan the gear if you'll let me you know do whatever just Mm -hmm. to kind of get out there 
And then I was really lucky because um, two weeks after I graduated, uh, one of the companies in Melbourne, Digital Pictures, gave me a call and um, and said, oh, you know, this this guy, Justin Heitman, um, has had an uh, operation on his shoulder, so he can't move his left arm. Do you want to come in and, like, lay some film on a telecine and type some, you know, information for dailies for rushes? And I went, sure. You know, they said it'll be two weeks, you know. And so I went in, did that. He didn't heal as quick as everyone thought. So, you know, that was end up being months and then he got better. And then they actually um, were going to do the mini series of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea with Michael Caine and Brian Brown. And they were, that was because it was an American production. We had to do all of the work overnight and then send it back to the States. And they were bringing in a, uh, a freelance colorist for that. And they said, well, you kind of know how to patch and, you know, do that side of thing. You know, if a new person's coming in, at least you can be the, I know, the, you know, where, the, where everything is and you can help out. So I did that for three months. And then they basically offered me a job after that because I just, I made the most of the opportunity yeah. mm-hmm. that I had, you know, because I was excited. So when I wasn't working on that, I was actually like playing on gear and just learning as much as I could because I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew I loved movies and all that, but I didn't, I didn't know it was going to be color. Um, and so while I was there, I became a, a technical director in the digital film department because they wanted to utilize some of my computer science stuff. But they, I also had a bit of image, you know, because of working in telecine. But I was still always like grading or assisting, you know, like for two years, I didn't really touch the, the, the color controls. I was doing everything else to support, but I didn't touch it. And then, you know, the, the traditional way, I mean, it's, it's a bit different these days, but when you have like um, mentors and proteges and you're an assistant, you know, you, you come up by just assisting and then, you know, there might be some free jobs where there's student films or whatever, where they don't have any money to do it, but so there's nothing really to lose. So if I muck it up, then it can be done again, but they're not paying for it. So, you know, you kind of start on, on the free jobs and mm-hmm. then doing dailies, if they're one mm-hmm. light dailies, again, you kind of just got to set it up. You can't really muck it up. Yeah. And then you go on to doing what was called best light dailies because then that color would be used once it's edited to, to work on TV shows. And so you, you kind of work your way up and then that leads to doing music videos. And like that's where I first met, unbeknownst to either of us, where I met Greg. You know, so doing music videos and then commercials and, and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, you kind of just work your way up. And then I was um, lucky enough to, to get a call for Lord of the Rings. And again, that was, that, that was <laughs> again, that was kind of through Justin because they, they rang him and um, he said, I'd love to do it, but I can't because my, my wife's going to have a baby in two weeks, but you might want to talk to Dave because he understands the digital film side of things and all that. So that's when I was lucky enough to go over there. And that's when I finished that film, that's where I thought, I think I can do color. Yeah. Like I was like I was really leaning into it because I'd worked as also a technical director in the visual effects department, writing Mel scripts for Maya in the 3D and doing a bit of compositing and stuff like that. And I liked all of that stuff, but I really liked doing color. And then after working on Lord of the Rings, I went, I, I, I think I can do this. Like yeah. I like I look back. Well, I look back then and I go, I. I, I like what I did, yeah. you know, I, I think I'm, there's something there yeah. and, you mm-hmm. know, and one thing led to another and then before you know it, I, I came over 
to the States in 2006. So that was, um, what was that? That was 10 years into, into my career. So mm-hmm. I, th- there was a lot of, you know, work on King Kong and things like mm-hmm. that in New Zealand. So there was definitely, it was by New Zealand. I did quite a few films over there. And then, you know, I've been here for, what, 16 years since yeah. that. Yeah. And I would love to for you to talk about what you've discussed in, uh, like, an early episode of Finding the Frame. But it's really interesting. You saw the change of what the, like, digital image process was starting, for you at least, with Lord of the Rings and also with King Kong. Could you talk about that? Yeah, well, I mean, back in the day, I like a... This might be me uh, having fond memories and kind of doing it, but I, I always say that Lord of the Rings was kind of the beginning of modern DI, modern color correction. There, there'd been other films like um, A Brother Where Out Thou and Pleasantville being done on a telecine, and it was like nothing that had been done before, obviously, for, for feature work. But telecine, when we were grading film or just tape to tape on video, we had the power of doing windows and all these things that wasn't available in traditional film space, which is you take it to the lab, you put more red, green, blue, or cyanogenic yellow, you know, it's negative colors, brighter, darker, that kind of thing. And and that was it. And then in the nineties, digital technology was coming about for visual effects. But then by the time we kind of got to Lord of the Rings, we, we had this, um, software color corrector package was developed that allowed us to do arbitrary windows and at the time we could do eight of these and we could key and we could combine them and render it out and bring it back in and do just because you didn't have to rely on anything being real time because you could just render and so it was a kind of a paradigm shift Mm -hmm. on where we went but back then and then even king kong and probably even up till i mean i'd hate to say a date but mid to late probably late around 2010 or something you know it was still film was the hero theatrical um was still film so we always were trying to when we were grading digitally and projecting it digitally we're always trying to make it look like film because film was the hero film projection because there was the the most number of theaters still had that but Mm -hmm. then whenever that kind of flopped over to digital projection you know, it was that was kind of the next step as well, because then we could embrace, you know, the color gamuts and, and all of that flexibility. And then obviously there was a lot of 3D and things like that, mm-hmm. which traditionally weren't on film. Mm. I mean, they had been obviously back in the past and there was technologies for doing, you know, over under where they had a frame on top and a frame underneath and they could split it and do all that. But really when um, 3D, there was a big push for 3D is when they really, they had enough um, projectors theatrically to do it so it kind of was one of the reasons um it flopped over and so it was yeah yeah a a lot of you know small kind of steps but um yeah the big one was back in those early 2000s was really going from a traditional way of color correcting because like on lord of the rings you know after that film you know i went around different places like in in the uk and then in the states and there was only a handful of companies that would do it. And they weren't, they might have had one colorist working. They go, look, we're not looking at hiring anyone else because we don't know if this is going to take off. Yeah. You know, there's only like five films a year that do this process because it was expensive, took time. You know, you had to film it back out, scan, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So it was still early days of, you know, it, traditionally people were still, I mean, even Lord of the Rings, like Fellowship of the Rings, was um 
Originally, it was going to be 40% of it was going to be a DI and the rest was going to be traditional photochemical. What was I, the 40%? Was that like more of a VFX-y heavy well, stuff? Well, yeah, or? and there, were, there was key scenes, you know, like, you know, we, we knew early on, you know, stuff with uh, the elves in Rivendell yeah. or Lothorian, you know, we'd probably want to do it. But then as we were working on it, you know, Peter and Andrew were saying, well, maybe we could do this scene, yeah. maybe we could do this scene. And so before <laughs> you know it, it was about yeah. 80% of the first film was... DI mm-hmm. with with 20% um, photochemical and then on films two and three it was 100% mm-hmm. so you know even then it was still you know early days because like what was the power of the computers to do it just to get the work done let alone mm-hmm. us doing the creative you know but nowadays like I was saying that compared to the 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 computer that we were using to grade on Lord of the Rings, your, your iPhone probably five years ago was still way more powerful yeah. than, than what we were doing. I mean, it was ridiculous. We could get eight frames a second at 2K, you know, so we were working in proxies. And when we were hitting deadlines, it was quicker just to shoot it to film, go and look at it on film, project it at speed, and then make any adjustments and go and reshoot it than wow. it was wow. to... Yeah to render it and, and evaluate it at eight frames a second because you want to make sure there's no mm-hmm. artifacts because it was bleeding edge technology. Yeah. So. Was there some like moments where there were big like crashes and things like that that would, because being so new. Oh was yeah, that, I mean, I, yeah. I remember there's a scene of when um, uh, Gandalf was like walking into Bag End and he was like putting his head under the, you know, the round doorway oh, yeah, yeah. and his hat you know, he was doing stuff and I had to rotor around his hat to get it right. And it was a really long shot. Well, yeah. for us, it was a really long shot. It was like 800 frames or something like that. And, you know, the roto tools were way more advanced than anything that had happened that we'd had capable uh, use of in color before. But compared to now, it was still kind of early days. And I remember like rotoing that and almost finishing the shot and then the roto just went crazy oh, <laughs> and you just go yeah. all right i'm starting again and you do it yeah. <laughs> you know, Damn, there, there yeah. was you know so there was definitely pain felt <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. uh back in those days yeah i can imagine it's crazy i mean it's 20 years ago right since lord of the rings the first one a little over 20 yeah and that's a long time but not a long time considering how much has evolved the computational mm. power even just talking about where those systems were in relevance to like an iphone and what you're able to do today and just the pipeline overall it's really incredible to be able to have those anecdotes for those that don't even haven't had the chance to shoot on film and what that process once looked like right uh, it's really incredible. And something I would love to know for both of you, as your careers were progressing, was there anything that the both of you did to help like shape your eye and creativity, aesthetically speaking? Obviously, I know like just working, getting your hands on the tools, being active in the process, but were there films that you were looking to or specific filmmakers or art, photography? Did you turn to any alternative like platforms to really help cultivate that eye? It's a good question. Um... <clears throat> I think it's just, you know, trying to consume as much as you can, like whether it's other films and artwork and like there wasn't really anything in particular where I'm like, oh, I need to really get into that to help my cinematography. Like you you try and watch as many things like this and, you know, there's so much information out there I, I found and finding people that you look up to that are willing to help, like mentors and having people that you can contact and ask questions and all of that sort of stuff helps. Um, I... I haven't done a feature on film yet, but I've shot a lot of music videos and, um, and some commercials and short films on it. And I found that when I learned 
that process of exposing and I, my eye became stronger because you're less reliant on monitors and I came up with a more of a video background. So I learned to read zebras and then false color and all that sort of stuff. And then it wasn't until I started shooting film quite a bit, I feel like I would look at with my own eyes at what I was shooting and that I'd see more. I just, my, your eyes got, I got trained to see more as opposed to just like, you know, like I, that, that was something that I found really helped. Um, and just learning more about exposure and stuff that you can bring back to digital. Um, I, I feel like, you know, yeah, that, that was something that's quite, that comes to mind. Um, yeah, yeah, there is something about exposing film. When I went to yeah. film school, my professors always said, we're going to start with film. Obviously, you can pick up like a digital camera, a digital yeah. cinema camera, learn to expose that way. But they're like, I want you to start with just a still image, yeah. 35 yeah. millimeter, learn how to expose that, get a light meter, yeah. learn how to expose without seeing, using a monitor or a screen. Then we did Super 8, then we did Super 16, and then we were allowed to touch a digital camera. And the methodology was, it's not that you can't start there because some people aren't fortunate to have those tools right mm -hmm. but to be able to expose you understand one the like filmmakers that came before you and how they really had to go through that process not having the tools and the luxuries that we have today yeah. and it's different when you look at a digital camera you can understand where all of the like settings and what all of that meant relatively to shooting on film absolutely a lot of the cinema cameras now speak that yeah. same language whereas mm -hmm. the old video cameras didn't you know like the old you know pd 150s mm -hmm. and even the mm -hmm. f 900 and things like that it was a different language and then I think, you know, but then when DSLRs came out, like the, the original 5D, it spoke more to that film language that a lot of the cameras like Alexa and the Sonys and Reds and all that have sort of taken on now. I think it's a really important, great way to learn. And as you say, like you can do it with a point and shoot still mm -hmm. 35 mil camera, you know, like and play around. The, the zone system was something that I remember like sort of clicked in my head, you know, the Ansel Adams thing. I remember buying a book on that and going, oh, like that that you know little things like that along the way kind of click with you and you, i feel like you just progress in little bursts here and there where you like understand elements of better more it might be a lighting technique you get wrong a bunch of times and then all of a sudden you know it's placing it there or this distance or you know that type of diffusion or something that you've read about or seen and you're like ah oh, that's you know that's it it's just sort of pushing i guess right. in all different areas but yeah yeah i think i found that um when I was learning, you know, I absorbed as much as I could. I read, I listened, I listened to, you know, director's commentary, like anything like that would read cinematographer, you know, Cineplex magazine, like anything like that. I would look at photography, painting, like anything like that. But truly learning to see for me was in the Telecine Bay doing dailies. Yeah. Because when you're doing dailies, you're seeing shots over and over and over again. Um, you're seeing many different takes, many different shots a day. Then you're seeing many different cinematographer styles, everything like that. And then you see the culmination at the end of where it came from and mm -hmm. where it went. And so you really learn to see. And part of the job when you're working doing rushes or dailies is you are the eyes of the cinematographer, especially when it was photographed on film because they hadn't seen it yet. So you were the first one, yeah. you know, to set eyes on it. And then you could give notes back to the cinematographer saying, hey, look, there's some exposure problems or whatever. So you had to understand the core fundamentals so that you could relate uh, to the cinematographer. But you also had to look at the entire frame at once. You know, audiences are trained to look at where you are supposed to look. Part of what we do as cinematographers and colorists and directors and editors is to guide the eye of the audience. Look at this, look at that, listen to this, do that when you're working in Telecine and dailies, you were looking at everything and you go, oh, I see a reflection over there, a boom swung in there, a scratch, there was a dirt hit, you know, anything like that. And so 
in dailies, you don't have time to just keep on going back because you've got to get through hours and hours and hours of footage. So you have to just like on blast, like take everything in. <laughs> and so open, take, removing those blinkers w- was learnt for me doing dailies. Mm-hmm. And you know, a lot of people today don't come from that, so they have to learn it different ways. But that was definitely um, a benefit for me. And then just being exposed to more and more material through the years being observant in real life like i'm always like when i'm the drive home you yeah. know it's usually you know twilight dusk or whatever so like i'm looking oh th- these color transitions that's what's mm. happening there or look at these clouds oh you see how it's there's a bright reflection there but it's you know and yeah. just locking that stuff away um for the future is you know what i, I draw upon and then now having done it for nine 25 years it's kind of like i know you don't stop learning so you know don't get me wrong it's like i'm always like every single job i'm going oh, i never thought of that or this but mm-hmm. you kind of you know you, the ground rules are in there and then it's like playing jazz you go i just oh look, where's this taking me and you you know you go over there and you go here and then yeah. it's you're playing in a band i mean you're working with the cinematographer and director you know if i was just playing my solo i'd be just jamming over <laughs> doing this but then you know he plays a note or something so it pulls me you know so yeah, it's sure. it's that it's a good way of looking at it you know sure. it's that that very musical approach uh to it but you have to have learned to have to yeah. see first and again that just grows as i mean you never stop learning so it the more you do it the more you learn mm. um but yeah, yeah those fundamentals are learnt early on and when you're doing dailies for for years you, you can't help but just absorb Mm-hmm. styles and and all of that kind of stuff yeah i remember like when i was just starting out and learning about like color temperature and things like that you would have, you'd know about warmer light and colder light and you'd, you'd just have a sense that you know certain lights are a different thing and everything but it wasn't until you really start looking and and exploring and 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 you know getting a different experience doing different projects where you really start to identify different as dave was talking about like the different types of sunsets and the different types of landscapes and urban lights versus practical like you know ambient lights that you have in your in your house and it all just sort of starts to become a little bit more obvious if you know Mm -hmm. what i mean if that makes sense like whereas i remember back to when i didn't really pay attention to that stuff it was all just what you know it's all in front of you but you don't you didn't really see the differences as much and i remember thinking that a while ago that now if you look at like the like you know you could be up at a hill over los angeles looking out you can really feel the differences and what types of lights they are and the colors and stuff whereas you know when i was coming up i probably wouldn't have really you know ah, it's just a, it's a city you know it, it, i think it's just refining how you see mm-hmm. things and then that you and then that how up. you can apply yeah. just what you inherently then know you go, absolutely oh, it would be you know i've always liked this yeah how can i bring that into yeah. what we're doing and then as you say as well like knowing what rules you can break so you learn all that stuff and it's like how about if we flip it all up and you know upside down that could be cool. That's a tool. But yeah, you sort of need to know what you're looking at. It, it, I think it really is an important thing is is as much as we probably all disobey the rules most of the time, knowing the rules is integral. And yep. that's part of the craft. You know, the craft is knowing what has, you know, come before you, why things are like they are, so that you make an informed decision when you go against the grain or do that and you you know this doesn't work because of that but that jarring nature is good in this circumstance or whatever you know so it is it is important to yeah like anyone can jump on a box yeah and cut 
five shots together. Anyone can pick up a camera these days, especially because the cameras are amazing, and shoot. Yeah. Anyone can grab free color correction software and grade, but it's, it's understanding why things work, how they work together, what the audience sees when they look at an image. It's all those things that experience basically brings. So you have to start somewhere where you don't know this stuff. Yeah. But it's being willing to always be open to learning. And then once you have that foundation of the craft, that's where it really becomes fun, I think, because then you can start throwing the rules out you know or embrace them or, or you yeah. know or amplify them you For know sure. as, as the case may be absolutely yeah. i feel like you both said it so beautifully there is something to be said about really studying like the filmmakers that came before us and even just going back to your the, your whole point with how the digital process changed right when you were really getting into it with lord of the rings and spending time understanding how we used to do it getting to a place where you understand the fundamentals where i understand all right I can start to like break some stuff here and make it my own way and being present. I think that's really important. A lot of filmmakers need to be present. And what's crazy is we just had cinema audio society peeps here. We had Carol urban and she's an amazing re-recording artist. And she said the way that helped her get better at doing sound mixing and being in post was just being present and sitting outside and hearing yeah. the environment. And it's no different for both of you who are creating an image. It's being perceptive of the world around you and being able to manipulate that in favor and pull that into the world of cinema, yeah. which I think is super important. And for the both, as your careers began to progress, were there anything that you did to continue that momentum? I know you both started in Australia, eventually transitioned to the US market. Mm -hmm. What was that like and how did you, once you got here, was it networking? Did you already have jobs set up and it was just a matter of like, what's the next gig? What were some tips to just keep the momentum going to sustain what is really a hard yeah. career? Um, with me, I had an opportunity to come here on a visa quite early. I, had, I didn't have a lot behind me at the time, so it was a gamble. I just I knew I wanted to be a part of this market, and I loved the States. I already had, had, had a, such a great time traveling here, and, and it's obviously an amazing market. It's a bigger market than what we have in Australia. Um, and, you know, there was some a, a lot of inspiration, I guess, from other DPs that have done it and, and uh, that I looked up to, and they were, like, working out of um, the States and stuff like that. But when I came here, it was um, I didn't really have a lot. So it was – I'm not going to lie. There were many nights where I'd be staring at the ceiling going, I mean, I'm going to pay rent. And I'd, and, and I'd go back to Australia to work, you know, um, and I'd come back and I'd maybe do some music videos, and I'd just try and – it's networking, as you say. Um, they were, uh, like, just trying to – yeah, it's a, it is – it was a hustle. Um my big break came when back in Australia, actually, when I was able to um, shoot the feature film Relic. Um, prior to that, I'd started to make some grounds in commercials and, and, and narrative and stuff like that as well. Like it was, uh, it was growing here and I was sort of getting to a point where I'm like, yeah, this is great. Like I'm working and I um, ventured, you know, I got an agent and all that sort of stuff. Um, so it felt like it was starting to happen. But then, yeah, when I shot Relic, um, that made it to Sundance and that got noticed by um, quite a lot of people and including Parker Finn, who was the director of Smile and things like that. So... Um, yeah, that was kind of like one of the, yeah, it took a while. Like I was here, I think I moved out here in about 2012 and for the mm -hmm. first four or five years I was splitting my time quite equally between Australia often to, you know, try and save up some money again and then I'd come back and just be doing short form, whatever, you know. Um, but I, yeah, it was, it was great to be mm -hmm. honest. I had a lot of fun, but yeah, it, it, it was just, um, persistence. It's a cliche, but it's true. Um, that was that was my story anyway. As far yeah. as yeah, what yeah, I, yeah. I think um, for me it was. I've always been with my career very lucky. 
opportunities would arise and I'd jump on them and then I'd make the most of them. Mm. So, you know, you maybe you're you're lucky to start with, but then you start making your own luck by yeah. engaging when you have an opportunity, just really, you know, grabbing the, the bull by the horns and going with it. And, um, you know, after I finished King Kong, I was lucky because uh, Laser Pacific was over here. They just opened up a new theater they were using lusses, which we'd used for the, for those films, and they said, "Oh, we need another colorist who knows the box to come in." And Autodesk recommended me to Laser and said, "Oh, you want to talk to Dave?" And at that stage, I didn't really want to work because King Kong had been so exhausting. Yeah. I mean, it was exhilarating, but it was it was hard. Like you, we lived and breathed that film. Um, very rewarding, but hard. So I just kind of wanted to decompress. And they convinced me to to come over just to come over for it's a week on us kind mm. of thing, and then they convinced me that it was in my best interest to come, and it was. And then once I'd landed, it was really making the most of all the opportunities that we had. I mean, what was fantastic is the first two films that I kind of did concurrently was um, Clerks Two with Kevin Smith and and Dave Klein, Scott Mosier. Um, you know, and, and Dave and Scott have, you know, been my friends since, since I started here and, you know, I've done a lot of stuff with, with Dave and, um, I worked on Southland Tales with Richard Kelly and, uh, Stephen Poster and Stephen Poster, you know, had been head of the, the um, camera guild and president of the ASC. And I'd actually met him earlier when I was coming over looking for work and he was really, um, fantastic for me because he knows everyone talk to everyone and we got along really well and you know we end up doing so many jobs together you know so again just making the most of those opportunities and the other great thing about laser is they had these fantastic large cinemas uh that we work in and so we were always you know bringing in you know the pga the dga the asc you know whoever you know wanted to have something and we'd do presentations or whatever and so i kind of just met people through that or you know we're trying to win a job so they'd get the relevant filmmakers in i'll do a demo and talk to them so you make the most of that opportunity and hopefully you gel because part of it when you don't have a a huge back catalog or you know a credit list you you know it's filmmakers obviously want the best they can possibly have for their for their film so they don't necessarily always want to take risks Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But a good part of being uh, a colorist is you're in a darkened room for, you know, anywhere up to, you know, a couple of months or whatever. So you need to know that you can gel with the people that you're in the in the room with and it's not just going to be silence for two yeah. months. So it was always, you know, I think I always made the most of, of trying just to connect as quickly as I could with the filmmakers and so that they knew that their what they were seeing in their mind I could like latch on to quickly and execute. And so that was always the big thing for me is if I could deliver on something that they were using just a few words to explain, that would hold me in good stead. And then obviously yeah. it becomes a massively collaborative thing. And then before you know it, you've done five films with this person, that film. So, you know, and every new relationship, you know, like with Charlie and Parker, I'm hoping that's going to continue, you know, so before you know, we've yeah. done five films together sure. and, you know, so it's it's always making the most of every circumstance you get, 
regardless of the budget or type of film or anything. You know, I'd just come off these two huge films. But then yeah. Clerks 2 was like super modest, you know, sure. in price, um, in budget. And then Southland Tales was, I mean, it was reasonable. I think it was $17 million back then. But, yeah. you know, it was, it was a passion project for everyone. So, you know, and then, you know, before you know it, you're doing $200 million movies again. And, you know, so it's, it's it, it doesn't, the budget of the film and the type of the film doesn't matter. It's all about the relationship and the creativity that you can bring to it. So, and, you know, I'm sure Charlie's the same and everyone who's passionate about it is if you're passionate about the project, regardless of all of the business side, you do the best that you can yeah. and you you find whatever you, whatever the limitations you have, you know, like Clerks 2, I think was six days, mm-hmm. you know, so... Where, you know, so you make the most of it and you deliver everything yeah. you can. And that's still the same now to what was then, you know. It's- I, I remember like an example of that. It's not, it goes back to when I, I was given an opportunity and that um, when I was just hungry to, to just to learn more about the craft and be on set and see how other people worked. Um, the Pacific, the HBO series was shooting mm-hmm. in Australia, in Melbourne. Um, and I had an opportunity to go and just help out in the camera department for a day as a PA. And I got there and they'd been shooting out in a national park um, and there was mud on everything. And I basically, they were like, welcome, you know, like, you know, we'd, we'd, thanks for coming. Do you mind cleaning mud off the tripods? And you know what? Like I, I cleaned like... You know, I just that that was that was me for the day, just like because I was so happy to be there. And every now and again, I got to run some film mags into into the stage and see what they were doing in there. And I was just like, whoa, like you know, um, amazing, amazing people, like artists, you know, at the top of their craft, and had a massive impression on me. But I think to Dave's point, it's just making the most of these opportunities because then from there, other things came. You know, like they, other things grew from that opportunity of just working really hard that day and and putting in. Um, you know, just you know, a good impression, I guess, and 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 another thing to to Dave's point as well, like having relationships are so important. So if you do find people you click with, like that's so important to me because you do spend so long with them. You go to war together. Um, so having directors that I become friends with and and colorists I become friends with and all that is like vital to me. I mean, you know, it's not always going to happen, and you're going to work with new people, and you know, hopefully that works out. That's all a part of it as well. But um, I think yeah just finding those people that you love working with and you know you know know, it's not always going to work out but then when it when it does it's important to yeah yeah and not being especially in the early days too proud about anything like i remember working with student filmmakers and you know i'd always say is just part of the conversation or what do you want to be once you finished all this and there was always a handful of people going i'm going to be the director sure yeah it's like okay how are you going to get into that well i'm just going to write my own film and direct it and it's like that's great and then other people say i mean ultimately i i mean i'm loving cinematography i'm loving directing and that but i just want to be part of this so you know Mm. i'll get coffee i will do whatever and almost without a doubt those people would progress up even if they end up working you know at you know studios or whatever you know not you know but they were willing to do anything yeah and i'm not saying that people who said i'm going to be a director and that's all all i'm going to do didn't but there was far more of the people that were willing to do anything yeah and you know embrace it especially in australia and that's why i just said yes to everything that's why i work in that department that department you know because it's such a small industry it's like well i want to know as much as i can about everything because i don't 
I still don't know what I want to do. Absolutely. And so and word travels fast as well. If yeah. you're one of those people that has initiative and and you you know, you know you're you're good to work with and you're happy to do whatever, then yeah, I found that that just sort of really helped with like getting jobs on other sets and stuff like that. So, but yeah, I've heard yeah. that at studios, like people who yeah. came in really as like a you'd say like as a minion or whatever, yeah. and they're way up yeah. there now you know they always make that joke is you know be careful of who you look down oh, on it, you know, as they're coming yeah. up because they're going to be up there and it's true yep. there's so many examples of that like you know. even people that have worked in catering event gone on to run studios you know not to name names but i've heard podcasts with that and i'm just like wow yeah you got to be yeah always you know, kind be, be, be a, a genuine <laughs> yeah. human being yeah. but also just give give what you can bring to the production and, yeah. and don't be too mm-hmm. you know <laughs> set in your ways that this is all you want to do because that yeah. rigidity can potentially be the thing that stops you getting right. what you want. Absolutely. Yeah, there's uh, there's something to be said about camaraderie and really nurturing those relationships on set. I think that's super important. Like you said, it definitely both helped your careers, mm-hmm. making sure that, hey, you got to show up and you have to get the work done. I mean, wiping cases, not the most fun and like yeah. thing that you're going to remember, but you the actually- The first day was fun, yeah. but then after that, but still- <laughs> it, does, it sets the tone. I yeah. mean, filmmaking's extremely hard craft and no one wants to be around someone that's going to be like, make it any harder, yeah. right? That's the uh, worst part of it. Yeah, it's hard enough as it is. Yeah. yeah. And that's where I want to take us into Smile, which is really great because this was before, this was- uh, this was your first collaboration between the both of you yep. mm-hmm. as DP colorists. And I thought it would be really great to be able to bring someone in to talk about that because it's not always spotlighted what that looks like taking a film from shooting it through post to delivering it and then having it on the big screen. Yeah. And we can just start off like how it all got started. And I'm assuming you were first involved in the project and what that looked like. Did Parker reach out to you? How did you get into the film? Um, so it was one of those, uh, again, speaks to the things that we've sort of spoke, like, you know, talked about and about coming up in the industry and everything, like showing up to events and and um, and meeting people is important. I'm not very good at that, to be honest. Like, it's, I struggle with it sometimes, you know. You can put on a brave face and turn up to things. And But anyway, I found myself at this um, event. It was for South by Southwest. Um, it was like a pre-event mixer party mm-hmm. in 2020. And relic um was in with another film i did pink skies ahead and i was going to this event and i got there early um i was meeting natalie the director from relic and she was late she's like i'm like i walk in and i'm thinking that there might be like it's a bit more of a party and maybe some alcohol and stuff like that and nope it was just bright lights and everyone's standing around and and i walked straight in and parker was standing there and i'm like oh here, you know hey man how, how you going and then um, yeah, we got talking, and he was in the same sort of position. He was like, "Oh, this is like weird, and what are we doing here?" And then we just got talking, and I think he'd heard about Relic, or maybe he'd seen it. I can't remember, but um, I was really interested to hear about his short film, um, uh, Laura Hasn't Slept, who which went on to win one of the I think Grand Jury prizes there, and a, another um, award for poster design. Um, and we kept in touch because history, you know, we know what happened that year, and everything shut down, and and COVID. Um, you know, it became a little bit of a thing and um, that uh, event went online and, and we just kept in touch through the year and then eventually we caught up and had a beer and he was excited to tell me that, he, that his film Smile had been picked up by Paramount and Temple Hill and that he was interested in, you know, he was considering me as DP and he was going to send me the script and I was like, dude, amazing, like, cool, um, I'd love to read it. And it's always a bit nerve wracking when someone wants to send you a script that you that you've that you already like, you know, because if you don't like it, then it's this sort of like, you know, you've got to be honest with yourself and with them. But it's you never want to be like, it's not my thing because, you know, I, I feel <laughs> that way anyway. Um, 
but it was a, it was a page turner and it was fun it was scary it was gory it was funny it was it just had a lot going on with it and and it was a good opportunity for me as well i'm not going to lie it was like a working at a slightly higher well not even slightly like a like a significantly higher budget than what i'd been um used to um coming from smaller independent films mm-hmm. and um yeah he fortunately offered it to me and then yeah then then we we went for it um that's sort of how it came about um yeah. That's how I, yeah. And when was yeah. principal for this project? It was about this time last year. Um, we were shooting through to Thanksgiving. We wrapped just before Thanksgiving and it was um, about a 32 day shoot, maybe 33 with an extra kind of, you know, splinter unit day or something like that. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, so we started like sort of mid-October, I believe. Yeah, yeah. it's exactly a year ago now. We're all on set. So. <laughs> yeah. And Dave, yeah. when were you brought on to yeah. this project? Uh, it was still in pre. Mm-hmm. Um, executive from uh, Paramount gave me a call and said, oh, you know, there's these two... Scallywags. Uh, scallywags. Uh, you know, these hotshot, uh, <laughs> you know, young filmmakers that have got, like, you know, he sent me links with their shorts and, and things like that. And they said, like, the, these guys have, have got something. Um, and, you know, they're interested in, you know, having, like, this filmic look and, and all that kind of stuff. And I thought, you know, you'd be able to help out. So... Um, like I was kind of photo camera myself was like brought on by the studio, you know, to, to have a discussion mm-hmm. at, at the very least. So, you know, like I, I spoke to um, Charlie, I think we, we had a zoom and, mm-hmm. and, and Parker had a, a call on the phone. Um, but we, you know, just spoke about the project and and what the intentions were and and you know as we said it was going to be streaming only so you know what our possibilities were in terms of having this filmic look mm-hmm. and then that seemed to go okay yeah um i was like pretty stoked to, to be able to <laughs> like you know i looked in I, I, I knew about your work but then i went through your imdb again and i'm like this is you know like obviously you've got a click it wasn't just based on that yeah. um there was, it was a lot more than that but it was like exciting to be able to talk to somebody with like all these films under his belt that i'd loved and stuff like that so yeah, yeah. and then we um you did the the wardrobe hair and makeup yeah. tests and that's where we did a a little bit of a, a look development yeah. light development you know based on you know these guys had um created some like lookbooks yep. and we went through that said you know we like this film this film this film we like how this worked in this film we liked how this was hidden in the shadow we like these pastel colors we like you know mm-hmm. all of that kind of stuff so we kind of rolled that into it wasn't too much into the lot but it was it was leaning in in those worlds yeah. and i remember mm-hmm. you know it was like green black so we put that into the lot yeah. you know so there's n- there's not really a pure black in there but it doesn't feel green but it, mm-hmm. it's, it's enough to make it unnerving you know so we kind of did that and then it helps me out a lot with exposure to like you know something i wanted to get better at and learn is like you, you build a bit of a safety net into the the lot formula yeah i think it was about a third yeah but, third yeah. to a half a stop you know just like yeah because you, you'd said you know on, on relic you know there was some scenes that were just yeah that were dark and yeah. and, and you know you, you go i was like i, I just don't want to get into that situation where we really got to work it sure um so i said you know how about we do this so we did yeah. that and then i remember because of schedule and because of the pandemic, you know, schedules were moving all over the place. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I said, look, I'm going to be honest. This this is an exciting project, but I don't know if I can be available because, it you know, everything moves around and things are booked. Sure. So I might be, this might be the end of my, <laughs> my you know, my relationship on this project. 
or I might be able to supervise it or I might be able to do the whole thing. But y- you don't know. And these guys were like, okay, we get it. And thank you. Yeah. And, you know, know, you know. Not if Parker had anything to do with it. But no, no, yeah. He's great like that. Like, yeah. <laughs> but we ended up, things just where everything fell and everything shifted. It was like, all right, this is yeah. DI time. And like I was like, lined up. Yeah, no, it just, yeah. it just, just everything yeah. continued to fall into place for the project. So it was just a... It was kismet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And let's talk about the tools a little bit. From what I read, you guys shot this on the Alexa 65s yep. with the Hasselblad DNA primes. What was the reason? I guess, what is your creative process when picking out and selecting the camera? Obviously, sure. it's a larger canvas than most. Yep. And what was the intention? Was there specific references? And how did you guys collaborate to make sure that was the right tool for the job and eventually leading that whole pipeline into post? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, knowing that it was most likely going to go to streaming, the Alexa 65 doesn't necessarily seem like the most logical choice, but um, we both love the camera for, you know, a lot of a lot of the references that we'd looked at, particularly actually even in television, like Lisey's story. And um, I don't believe the servant was shot on. I think that was more the LF, but um, there, had, there were quite a few references coming through that had been shot on it, which made us sort of want to explore it a little bit more. Um, the main reason though, is essentially the way the lack of distortion that you get on wide lenses when you come in close to the talent or a subject or an object you know that was something that was really important to us we wanted to be really up close and personal with rose and um see her vulnerability and see her the trauma and but also feel the environment around her you know rather than going telephoto or being on a smaller form well yeah rather than going telephoto and compressing everything we actually wanted the audience to see and feel the environment um if we, we tested smaller formats like the the, the mini and the LF, and um, I, be, I believe we we ended up with Ari, so they were really the cameras we we stuck with testing, um, and that you know we were both comfortable with. Usually, anyway, we don't need to, we can I can talk about different manufacturers or whatever. Mm-hmm. We don't need to go there. Um, they're they're all great for different reasons, but in this case, yeah, we we um, we were with Ari Rental. They really looked after us, and we were able to test everything and. Um, that was the main reason really like we we you, you get so much more distortion when you're on a smaller format on a wide lens you know like people's faces get warped and things like that and we didn't want to do that to Sosie we wanted to keep the perspective more or less you know um, within a you know a normal kind of realm and that was really it like there it's amazing in low lights it's essentially three Alexa sensors stacked together so that's relative to grain size you know like and screen size but yeah if you're on a smaller screen I found that you could you could um, there's a little bit more room to play with the ISO without things getting um, really noisy and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Um, but essentially, that was the main reason. It was the perspective um, that right. you get. Like you can be on a 28 mil lens, which was the widest lens we had with uh, the DNAs. Um, I think that's equivalent to around a 14 mil, something like that. I should know my math a bit better. 14, 15, 16 mil, something, um, which is a very wide lens if you're on the, you know, mm-hmm. on an LF or a mini and or with a Super 35 sensor. But you get that same field of view, but not the warping, you know, which can be great for certain projects. Like, you know, if you're in Loathing Las Vegas, it works having people's faces like really big and crazy in frame. Yeah, I, I love that too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, everything has a place. Like I'd, I'd be open, totally open to doing a film like that. But in this case, it, it was the right format. And Parker really loved it, loved what he saw. And 
he's a very visual director mm-hmm. as well. Like he's got like um, really strong sort of um, a take on on how he wants things to look, and and that's great. Like, and we kind of worked. You know, he'd tell me sort of things, and I'd I'd be like, okay, like you know, right. can we try this? Maybe try that. And he'd he'd always have an opinion. Um, and that's yeah. I think we just landed on it, and we were like, this is this is cool. And then being able to shoot on the Alexa sixty five, there were some concerns about the amount of um, data and and disk space and the cost and all that sort of stuff. But Ari were really helpful in allowing us. Um, to use it, it's not really, it's becoming an older camera now, so it's not necessarily reserved for these big $100 million epics anymore. Like you can, like people out there that want to use it, talk to Ari, because they might be able to work something out. It's a it's a really cool format, and we're pushing to have them update it as well, if they're listening. Like, we, we're kind of hoping that they go forward and, and create a next generation Alexa 65. They've also got, and Dave, you probably better speak more to this, um, high density encoding, recording, where you can, um, it's it's you're still shooting Ari raw and it's um I believe lossless as but far it's, as it's a lossless compression so yeah. you can actually reduce your file size while maintaining the raw yeah. you know without any loss of quality yeah and that basically. was a huge selling point like to be able to tell Paramount that they can save forty percent on um, disk space and all and transfers and all that sort of stuff that was that was huge and, and especially yeah. being able to like send it back you know to where it was being cut and things like that yeah. is like you can, you don't have every single take for the entire shoot sitting on a drive there. I mean, you, you have a week or two weeks maybe, you know, and you've got to get stuff off. So, you know, it's it's trying to maximize that space, you know, to speed ratio. And, and that, that yeah. was one of the benefits that, that didn't point. didn't exist originally. Like yeah. I think when we did, um, I did The Great Wall, that, yeah. that did not exist. That was sure. just massive files. Meaty files, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, you know, you have to put it through the Plexa to put the three chips together to make the raw to, you know, it was it was a process. But, yeah, the... Yeah, the um, the it definitely the, helped. The encoding yeah. really did... Um, it would allow a show that might necessarily have the budget mm-hmm. in terms of that daily's post mm-hmm. to be able to utilize it. Yeah, 100%. And then... You can use it across all of their cameras too. Yep. You know, you could use it on the Mini or the Amira and like it's, it's actually can scale right back to. So, you know, for, for people that um, haven't looked into that, I recommend it because it was news to me at the time. I was like, what? How can you, you know, the, the, the old, um, what is it? Full metal jacket reference, a golf ball through a garden hose. Like, <laughs> how do you do that? Like, but they, they have figured it out and it, and it saves time and money. So, yeah. No, that's yeah. really amazing insight. And as you started to craft the image, this is a horror film, right? So it is a genre. You have to figure out to work within what, not necessarily audience's expectations are, but what did you start to consider when you both were going into this project from just the image, capturing it on set to delivering it in post? Was there any insight that you gave Charlie leading about just like exposure generally, or were there any considerations for lighting that you were trying to hit, especially with Parker? Like what was the process collaboratively between the three of you to execute this film i think this is mainly going to be him talking but there was definitely that that bit where we spoke about being able to see into the shadows even if not clearly we needed to be able to sense Mm -hmm. that something is potentially there yeah Mm -hmm. and so we did have that conversation and that's why we built the lot with a with a little bit of uh range in there so that charlie could shoot over Lut would bring it down, so they get the look that they want. But there was that safety net because yeah. if you if you're playing that hard into shadows and you're shooting it right, like exactly how you wanted it, with no safety net, things can unfortunately like you just get into a black yeah. hole and and then you can't dig things out. So we definitely had that discussion yeah. and and build that. But yeah, yeah I mean that was our that. main conversation regarding. Mm-hmm 
yeah that but side we, of things we definitely shared references like going in that parker and i had spoke about and we all got on the same page with that like to build that light as you spoke to earlier and um but yeah as far as like the process developing it with um parker like he's a film buff like you know he told me stories about his family and his father they would just watch so many films you know growing up his dad had an av company and that was a big part of their family life um so he was such a you know i, I learned a lot from him coming in and he shared some references that i hadn't seen and um, we, you know, we had a lot in common as far as the sort of the, the, the look and feel. I think that sort of like he was happy when I sort of presented a couple of references that he already had in mind. He's like, cool. Like, so we just got off to a good start and he, um, he'd been thinking about this film obviously a lot longer than I had. So there were certain sequences in there that he had really great ideas for and we, he would come over to my place and sometimes I go to his and we would shot list before official pre started and we would just talk through the film and the script and, and, and shot list. And he was, um, yeah, as I mentioned, he's like a very visual guy that, that like, you know, can see these things sort of playing out and, and we would sort of, you know, would sit there and sort of shoot the shit and, and improvise a bit like playing jazz and, and, um, and come up with things and, and, yeah, uh, a lot of my job, I feel like, is to really help, you know, some of these ideas come to life about what sort of tools we'd use and what sort of lighting could help enhance it. And and um, that was great. Yeah, he's, he's really, you know, awesome. I'm excited for the guy. I think he's um, he's a, he's going to be a force. Um, he, um, yeah, but that's sort of, I guess, you know, before official pre started, you know, we shared a lot of references and. Um, I think I've told this story before, but there was this film Possession out of mm-hmm. Europe that I, they, they, I had to buy two Blu-ray players for. You know, you had this obscure thing I hadn't seen. It actually stars Sam Neill and Sam stuff. Sam Neill, Isabella Rajani. Yeah, really cool film. Um, and that's where a lot of the whole filmic kind of thing came in. Like a lot of these references, he's very influenced by 80s and 70s horror and stuff like that. And we didn't really want a clean image. Like shooting on film wasn't really going to be a, a thing. And um, just with time and budget and, mm-hmm. you know, Parker's first film. So I think he was wanting to, you know, really get a sense of um seeing the image on set and things like that which is you know totally understandable um so shooting on film wasn't necessarily going to be an object we kind of i wanted to test some things on it but it sort of got shut down i think on a studio level unfortunately like not to say they wouldn't for other things but um it didn't really didn't really happen that way uh and yeah like did you craft any forms of like rules of engagement considering composition the way that the characters worked within the frame is there anything that you were trying to do like keep character these characters in singles Mm -hmm. always was there anything that you and parker talked about early on yeah good question one of the rules that we had um was we didn't really want to have no over the shoulders because we didn't want to bring rose we didn't want to attach her to anybody we wanted her to keep her isolated so whenever rose is in the scene which is basically every scene um, you'll notice the camera's always between people. Like there'll be a wide shot um, where you know, they're obviously together and you set that up. So, you know, there might be some movement and passing of one another, but essentially there's no over the shoulder coverage, which is very different to how I've shot most of my other projects and films and stuff like that. Um, but I think it worked. I think it was really, it was a cool way to approach it. Um, uh, the other rules, like, you know, we always wanted the camera to be like a lurking presence, you know, a lot of movement, but then not being afraid just to lock things down to, not movement for the sake of it. Um, that's something I really love about working with Parker, like things should move for a reason. And I think we spoke earlier about like with horror, it's with any genre really, but it's like, what do you want the audience to see? What do you not want them to see? And like, you know, color and lighting and composition all plays a part of that. Um, so it was just going in quite prepared. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you don't always get it right. You know, you run out of time. And you, we a scene that we might have five shots for, we had to do in three, and that would be frustrating sometimes. And but, you know, I think having that foundation and going in with those rules is like really important because you can kind of fall back on it, and then, you know, it's 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 a template. It's just something to come back to and um, help you in the moment, especially when you're running out of time and stuff like that. 
Um, but yeah, there was some rules and there's definitely some rules with color and stuff like that with the set design um, mm-hmm. as well. Uh, but yeah, that was one of the main ones that come to mind is like, there was a couple of scenes, like I know Joel and Rose in Joel's apartment, they're kind of stacked up, but we, the depth of feels really tiny in that. We still wanted to have that separation. Um, I think we, you know, on the Alexa 65 shooting at like twos or something crazy like that, where, you know, one eye's in, but like, so when there's two people in frame, we still really wanted to separate them. Um, that was a way to kind of, you know, get around that when people are sitting next to each other and it was really hard to get singles rather than shooting straight against a wall, you know, it's a, it's uh yeah. Yeah. Color wise, yeah. there was the, um, the concept of yellow. Yep. Yep. So if you, if you watch the film, you'll notice when you, when you notice yellow, something, you know, is probably yeah happening or around you know so it was again it's 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 leaning on these traditional concepts mm-hmm. that are not overt but hopefully people who really enjoy yeah. the genre will you know embrace and be in and enjoy the fun sure. of yeah even on a subconscious that, level yeah. right like you know the an example is in the um that's the interview room with it uh, it's quite heavily featured in the trailer um yellow flowers you know, there might be a yellow tie, there might be yellow gift wrapping paper and things like that. And it was really fun working with like Parker and um, Alexis, our costume designer, and um, Lester Cohen, the uh, production designer, and all these different departments. And, you know, it was cool that Parker was like adamant that, you know, certain things should be there for a reason. Mm-hmm. It's just a fun, yeah, I don't know. It just adds a little bit more excitement to certain things as well. I think and I love can... what you did with the interior of the hospital with the pastel pink colors. Yeah. And I know we were talking about this before, how in, and they might still do this in psychiatric facilities, but a lot of times they use these colors to help soothe the patients on a psychological level. Is that something that Parker and yourself talked with, like the set decorator and the art department to yeah. help execute? Definitely. Um, I would say I was certainly involved in all these discussions, but a lot of that I'd give credit to Parker and Lester mm-hmm. for. And then, you know, we would come back all as a group and would figure out, you know, like I, something I did help Lester with is the tone of pink and how that reads on camera in the testing days and stuff like that. So, um, but a lot of those ideas were conceived by Parker and, and Lester. And then, um, you know, I'd sort of come to the table with like, if we're building a set, like where the windows could go and where the space, what space is needed for camera and the different, um, you know, how with the lot that we designed, um, how does that react to the shade of pink and things like that. And, and what's yeah. interesting there is even like when they're in the interview room, as in the patient interview room, <laughs> the shades on the window are yep. pink as yep. well. So they're lit through the window, this pink. So you get the obvious pink at the window, but you also get this kind of uncomfortable, <laughs> you know, blue cyan from the <laughs> from the walls, but then yeah. this pink and normally a lot of cinematographers that I've worked with is like, oh, I can't stand this pink. You know, I yeah. can't stand mag- magenta. It's it's that awkward color. Yeah. Because the opposite color is green and neither one of them are necessarily something that you want on skin yeah, tones. Yeah, it's quite like often it, the, it's most, not the most flattering. flattering. You yeah. have to find that thing. So when there's definitely a statement is being made is like we're pumping light through mm-hmm. a pink shade that's going to hit people yeah. with an almost opposite color. Again, it was this uncomfortable yeah. and that's um, really like one of the main themes for it. we just wanted people to be uncomfortable basically the whole mm-hmm. time you know yeah like we did a really good job at that yeah, both cool. <laughs> <laughs> and something we were both mentioning that i would love to talk about you said it already originally this was intended for streaming and then it eventually it eventually changed to a theatrical release you guys did dolby cinema at what point in the process was it during principal or in post that that got changed and did that affect anything we i'm sorry no, I, yeah. i'll just say quickly um 
it tested really well. So when it did, so we, I remember having conversations with Parker being really excited and be like, do you think that could mean that they might want to take it theatrical? And he's like, oh, maybe like there was whispers early on about like mainly amongst ourselves are like, wouldn't that make sense if it's, if it's tested really well and the audience liked it. So, um, but it wasn't until we were in um, a color session uh, where Parker got the call and he stepped out and he came back in. He's like, I just had a great call with Paramount. Yeah, well, kind of, we're, yeah. we're a week in. So yeah. it was, yeah, you know, we were, we were near the middle of doing it when we yeah. found out, you know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's sort of, we didn't know when we were shooting. Like, we were kind of, even though we were colouring on the, on a, on a, on a, in the theatre and stuff like that, and maybe we could speak a bit about that. Mm-hmm. And if you've got, you know, there's different processes for different deliveries and yeah, stuff like that. Amazing. But at that point, I think we were just, they still wanted it to be you know, coloured in a way that I guess it was going to be at a cinema somewhere. There's yeah, talk of it yeah. going to festivals or like... Yeah, a, and we wanted yeah. a theatrical look, so, yeah. you know, traditional, you know, SDR kind of look. So we yeah. wanted to do that hero grade in that environment because mm-hmm. especially with streaming, you can just say, oh, we're going to do the hero in HDR and everything can be derived from that. At the moment, the, the, the downside creatively to that is filmmakers, you know, uh, living and breathing the show months years before it comes into the di room and so if you suddenly go into hdr if you have not monitored if you have not cut in hdr it can be quite affronting like you mm. like you go, oh this is this is not the movie we've been looking at and and you have to learn to see the image again whereas if you start in sdr in this case it's an easier transition so mm-hmm. all right in this scene i want to do that that it's like it's it's less of a jumping off sure. place you can you can just um start doing the creative work and then as you move to hdr after it you can say oh let's embrace this or whatever but it can be a little bit tricky but with this one it was always wanted to be i mean it was it really the film has so many references and homages and everything to great horror cinema you know because parker loves it you know and it was that was part of the the film the texture and everything yeah. discussion is like we wouldn't like that so we all kind of agreed like let's do it on the big screen let's do it like that and we're just going to embrace that this is theatrical even though it's not yeah and then we'll handle the other things and we, you know i've done quite a fil- few films like that yeah but it could be we're just grading on a monitor and that's how we go but we did decide to just embrace it so we're sitting in the theater kind of when we we found out and then after that sank in after a few days you know the initial one of the initial reasons that we were all put in contact with each other was what ways can we embrace the film look without using film because Mm -hmm. there's no budget for it and Mm -hmm. everything so we're going to emulate throw grain and flicker and weave and all of the stuff that we can try to make it look like it's gone through an optical process but once we found out that there was a theatrical possibility, <laughs> we said, well, maybe we can do it for real. Maybe mm. we can go to film and bring it back like we had with Mega Budget, Dune and, and Batman. Yeah. Um, but he was a very modest budget film. So this is why it was, it was never a thought process. Yeah. It's funny, like when we found out, like, these little ideas start to be like, oh, if yeah, they're going like, to give us that, then yeah, maybe we like, can. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, like what, what can we, you know, yeah. what, what are they willing to do? So... Yeah. We chose about five minutes of just key shots, represented everything yeah. in the movie, shot it out to film. We duped it onto IP just to see if we wanted that, you know, because it was always the reference yeah. to these traditional, I would say 80s, yeah, 90s kind sure. of yeah. style. 
But one thing I'll say to that is like, we did also choose a format that's quite clean, like in the camera. So yeah. it wasn't, we, we wanted to find that balance of not feeling a little bit contrived, like, oh, like. We didn't want it grainy. Yeah, and, and it was and the other things really. Just it a little bit so of texture. The yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So after we did this little test, we, we kind of, obviously led by these guys, but we all kind of agreed for this film. It was a better salesman. And I didn't, you know, like the guy that like Photocam, which was so kind in helping with all of this, like an amazing place, but like, you know, the gentleman that's just come off all these films with all that experience doing it, it was just like really fortunate in a way that like it was able to become a, an idea that turned into a possibility. But then not only that, it was like led by people that are like, the most experience at doing it so mm -hmm. we, I was, yeah we're very fortunate to be under that roof at that moment where they're like the lab's out the back i've done this let's before. do the test let's, let's do, do the, the test. test i mean yeah what's the worst they're gonna say that's right no. it's there like they can do it you know yeah. they don't have to take it somewhere else so we were yeah very fortunate yeah so we that. chose just to do it off yeah. neg because again it wasn't about grain and artifice it was more just drawing the audience in letting them to believe because with any any movie whether it's it's like real life or whatever it's it's still artifice. We are watching a projected image and we're meant to believe. Hopefully with great storytelling and acting performance, like cinematography, everything, you're drawn into the story. But with these cameras, especially when you're shooting on the, the Alexa 65 with these clean lenses, like it is pristine. Like yeah. it is a pristine image. So while beautiful and perfect, there's something that might just hold the audience at arm's length. Mm -hmm. And so this is why the discussion when they couldn't shoot on film originally, it was like, well, what can we do with grain or mm. some form of emulation? So when we were grading, we we're grading under an emulation because yeah, we were always yeah. we always wanted to have something. Um, but then we had this opportunity, and we went, well, let's do the test. And then these guys go, well, like yeah, yeah, like we like this. Yeah. And so we present it to the studio who. I think we were all feeling like, well, let's see. And they came in and said, absolutely. Like, I don't know what the discussion was behind closed doors. Yeah. But as far as we were concerned, it was like, yes, that brings, that allows you, like, allows you to believe yeah. it. Remove, you know, it was just. You were getting ready to have to say a lot more than what you did. Yeah. Right? And then like they you were pretty like much ready, sold yeah. it to me. And yeah. I was <laughs> Again, credit to Paramount for that. Like, yeah. there's a lot. I think they've done a lot of really cool things with mm -hmm. this one and given yeah, us opportunities and filmmaker, stuff. So, filmmaker centric, you know, yeah. like, yeah. like what, what's going to tell the best story, you know? Yeah. And, and so we were very, lucky so yeah. again on on a on a more modest budget where yeah. you wouldn't expect to do it it's like you could still do it and thankfully yeah. when they did say we we're going theatrical there was still time to do it because usually mm. you have to plan this stuff and like delivery windows to everything are very compressed but there was always we were doing it and mm. they hadn't worked out when they were going to release it yet and then we found out and they said it's going to be this date so we still had yeah very the time so we we're lucky. And then we finished the movie. We did the home video. We did the HDR. Then maybe six weeks after that, they said, maybe we should do a Dolby theatrical version as well. Yeah. So we'd kind of it's put the, the movie to bed. Just on giving. Why not? You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we yeah, all said, it? absolutely. It's like, is this what it's like? Is this what moving forward? You know, like. <laughs> so, yeah, we said absolutely. So we went in there and yeah. spent a few days. Well, I spent a few days and then presented to these guys. Yeah. And, um, and that's yeah. That's um, that was a learning curve for me too. Seeing the difference between regular sort of theatrical projection versus um, Dolby and that sort of HDR realm of like what what it offers. It's, yeah, that was a, that was a treat. And what do you I, both find really special about Dolby Cinema in delivering in that format? 
Well, for me, it's it's really um, allowing the audience to experience exactly how we create it. Mm. Quite often with traditional uh, theatrical experiences, you, you're at the mercy of the of the theatres projecting things correctly. You know, be it light level, focus, colour spill, you know, exit signs next to the next to the screen. Like you, you're at the mercy of every single cinema is going to be different. Um, but the good thing about the Dolby experience is they do have a spec. They do set the rules mm. and the light levels are going to be right plus it has that extended dynamic range so it has has you know in in like a 32 foot lambert rather than a 14 foot lambert so there's there's more latitude to play with it goes into a deeper black but i always say it's not necessarily about how bright we can make it how dark we can make it it's how good does it represent what we creatively want to do? If you remove, if you pull the constraints back, we can sit where we want to do it. Whereas quite often, you know, even like in the SDR world, is the constraints are dictating things to us. Mm -hmm. So we make decisions based on that. You know, with Dolby, it really opens that up. So then we can choose where we want to put things down. So it really is probably the most accurate mm. representation of what we're trying to achieve. And you know, if you go to any theater, it will be representative yeah. of that. And well, and also the audio side of things too, right? Like oh yeah, 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 I'm just like, talking purely no, vision. Yeah, yeah. yeah, no, but that is also another added benefit to it. You get mm -hmm. to see it, like, you know, yeah. Honest, you know, right? it's light with this amazing, you know, audio scape. So um, yeah, I think it's awesome. Would you say, and this is even for the both of you collectively, is there a scene or a frame, this is finding the frame here, is there a scene or a frame or a sequence that really like exemplifies this process of what you feel like you got the most out of it? Or do you know what I'm trying to say? Um, Dolby? Or just, or just in, in, in smile itself. Oh, in, in itself. Um, it's a good question. I like the thing I like about it, and I've spoke about this when we're actually shooting is that there's all these different sorts of worlds and looks in a way. Mm. You've got the bright hospital that, you know, is we wanted to be uncomfortable for a certain reason, but it wasn't necessarily the lack of light and shadow and stuff like that. And then the house, which is quite a lot of shadow and using the, the, the space to really kind of like make people paranoid because it was like a lots of like different areas and, and different rooms off the back of the living room and the bedrooms and all that sort of stuff. And then, then you had the old sort of dilapidated house at the end, Rose's childhood home, which took on a different look. And that was like a lot more of that sort of dark, like let things really fall off. And mm -hmm. so, I mean, I, as far as like picking a specific one it's sort of hard because I'd, I'd, I'd it was really fun shooting all these different areas and having it sort of all mash into one if that makes sense yeah, did you like, have a shot that you're most proud of oh I don't know um, the one that I'm proud of because it it made the trailer and made so many people buy tickets, I think, as the, the, the head swing shot. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't have them. I mean, I can speak a bit about how we did that. It was Parker's, like, he had that idea. It was solid. It was one of those things that was like, you know, are we, we going to have enough time? You know, what ends up, I won't give it away, but what ends up happening after that, we were running out of light. Had really had to push the camera. Like, the day was, we were we were nearly done. We were about five minutes away from missing that um, extension to that scene, which I feel like is the real payoff after seeing it in the trailer. But, I mean, like, that seeing that there was a big reaction to that and um, knowing the story behind it and how we kind of did it and we literally had Gillian um, uh, lying on top of a car and like it was a VFX mat like VFX went into it obviously but you know the, the way we shot it if you drove past that day and you looked at like this film set and you saw like a 
a mattress on top of a you know stunt stunt um, hanging off it. basically yeah like it was all and then obviously they did a lot of work with stretching the neck and things like that afterwards but um i think that was it was cool like we were a little bit at first like oh you know they've gave that away in the trailer but um i think it was it started this sort mm-hmm. of reaction and it went a little viral and things like tiktok and stuff and um so seeing how something a moment can put a play out and what that effect can be down down the track i think is, was really re- rewarding um, and yeah. i think what's interesting about yeah. that shot but also in the film in general is so much of that kind of work is practical mm. there might be some augmentation yeah. done in visual effects, but it's not relying on visual effects it's yeah. like there's people doing that there's puppets there's prosthetics yeah. you know it's it's it yeah. really is an homage yeah. to the way it was done it's just you know yeah. some things have been like helped out yeah. But it was always tried to be done practically and you know and, and credit to Parker on that too, he really pushed from that for the beginning. He wanted to use puppetry and we were like very fortunate to have uh, Mr. Woodrick flag, you know, create the, that beast for us and like, you know, being someone who's he created the alien queen and stuff like that. So to be able to work with people like that and, and that that was very special. That's something that comes to mind actually. Thanks for triggering that little memory because that was on the day like seeing all these things like and I had that with Relic as well. Like with Natalie, she wanted to really push um puppetry and you know not rely heavily on vfx so i love it when they when you arrive on set and they've brought them to set usually it's a day before maybe because they're starting to like set up their area and you're like like yeah working with practical um you know puppetry and stuff like that's like awesome and it's something that's probably was done a lot more decades ago compared Mm -hmm. to now so it was a real treat to work with people that one want to push it the artists that create it are outstanding and then actually filming something real is a really really cool like you know I'm, I'm sure like nothing wrong with filming an empty space or like somebody in a blue suit and tracking balls and stuff like whatever like that it's all it all it's all great it all has its place but when you're actually filming a, a puppet with like that kind of face and teeth and or the movement you know people off outside a frame with rods you know and then they get painted out later and seeing that process and working with a vfx artist on about how to mesh the two worlds and mm-hmm. that was that's really great that's exciting yeah, yeah there is a real tangibility with it and you could feel it and, you yeah. know i feel like that's the big difference not that like cgi elements can't be used to an amazing extent but having those practical effects there you can it ground it. yeah yeah it grounds yeah. the film really yeah. well and something i would love to talk about is what are some tips for filmmakers even in your like respective disciplines and when it comes to collaborating going mm-hmm. into a horror film what are the considerations that you need to have mm-hmm. I think just trying to get on the same page and realizing when you realizing that like if, you, if you're not like acknowledging that and trying to figure figure that out because mm-hmm. you don't want to be down in you know in the in the process and just be on a completely different wavelength um that that's really difficult unfortunately i haven't really been in that situation um often or you know i think i'd like to think you know and smile and relic and other films like i've uh you know you've gone in with a good plan and you're on the same page as them their references that they've given you and that you've shared and shots and all that sort of stuff, lighting, like showing just, I think references and again, and artwork and photography and all these sorts of things, they're all like great tools to be able to come to the table and be like, do you like this? Do you like that? Why? Um, that's probably one of the most important things. I think you don't want to just be off, you know, playing like playing jazz is great, but you still need to be like, you're on trumpet. I'm on the clarinet. Still in the same band. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. You don't want to be having backs turned to you and just, you know, um, what would, you say are some of the, what would you say are some of like the hardest elements of shooting a horror film? Um, for me personally, it's probably different for Dave. It's like quite often you do a lot of nights and, you know, we, we naturally usually do long days in film, whether it's 12 or plus or, you know, I think it's just that stamina 
mm-hmm. you know, and you get that on all films too. I shouldn't just say it's a horror film thing, but um, quite often you are doing things at night. So, you know, if you're not on a stage, it can dictate the schedule. Um, you know, it can definitely push the schedule in a certain way and um, stamina, just sort of trying to get enough sleep and, you know, I don't, I, as far as a horror specific technique goes, I, I, I don't know. I think they all, mm-hmm. they are, they're very similar in a lot of ways. You're still building tension or the lack of and trying to find beats, whether it's a jump scare or a comedic, you know, timing or like that, that, that's sort of like, it could be across all genres. So I don't really look at horror as being like a, have its own thing, you know, it, I think it's very similar to, a lot more similar to like a, a bright comedy than you would think, mm-hmm. you know, um, but I, I think just the filmmaking process can be quite draining and it's important to, you know, just try and get your sleep and drink enough water and all that sort of stuff. Things I haven't done the best in the past, I'll be honest. And like you do find moments where you're really starting to, you know, say, so I think that's something that I need to get better at and just like looking after yourself and trying to, I don't know, you know, there's that stress of it all and like things that will keep you up at night, even though you're exhausted, you're like, oh, tomorrow I have to do this and this and that and, you know, hope it goes well. And it's trying to zen out a little bit more, I think. Yeah. Is there anything yeah. that comes to mind for you, Dev? I mean, pretty much any film is mm-hmm. brings the same thing. But, you know, one thing you would say with horror that is generally is like there's dark is what, what you see in the shadows, what you don't see in the shadows. So part of it is making sure you see enough and having to obviously try to think about cinemas or viewing environments where things aren't going to be set up right so Mm. so if you brighten it up for the dark places is it then too bright when you look at it on your iphone or however people happen to watch it you know so it's 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 threading that needle of what's the right amount Mm -hmm. and making sure we're seeing enough given a variance of where i mean ultimately we have to go to spec because there's too many permutations mm-hmm. but being threading that needle that we're all happy in that the mood is created and the darkness is dark enough while allowing the audience to not go oh, look i i tune out i can't see anything yeah you know, that's that's always a tough thing and yeah. if everyone saw it in our environment it wouldn't be in a, a question yeah, but the real world, unfortunately, is I, I learned, I learned the hard way during the pandemic. Um, I was fortunate that Relic actually did sort of get some theatrical release, but it was at drive-ins, and it's been a very dark film. And I remember going to see it because I was excited to go to a drive-in and see the film play out. But it was a full moon, and there was like I forget which one it was here in Los Angeles, but not to talk like you know, still awesome that they they're here. But there was also like a sodium vapor light from a factory next door leaking on the screen, and yeah yeah a lot was lost so it was like learning i mean look you know it, it, it with hindsight if we knew we may we could have done like a pass or something to suit the drive-in a little bit more is that something that's done i don't know I, I've, I've never done it but yeah. i'm sure if, <laughs> that if, year if, it was if like you a thing. Were, yeah. if you were doing like a, a single print release i mean yeah. you, you might do something yeah but um yeah definitely a lot a lot is a learning curve and i think it is it's like i always think what the audience doesn't see is is as important as what they do see um but there's always that balance and finding the right you know the the right sort of um yeah balance between the two like i think in in terms of smile there's obviously the you know shots where she's sitting on the bed on a laptop and like looking through the door is like yeah can i see something i don't i don't think i can you know or or whatever but then there's the more subtle darkness and Mm. ambient set like in the attic yeah when she goes up and she's talking to the wife of the of Mm. of a previous victim i mean it's daytime. Yeah. There's lights on tungsten, but it's also an attic that only has one window. Mm. 
and there's all of this art and paraphernalia around and it's like you want the audience to see all of it because it's yeah. cool but it also has to have this mood and so there's a fine line of just basically this yeah. is full on day or no this is still like an uncomfortable space mm. with uncomfortable paraphernalia yeah. all around you know so it's that's not always the obvious this is nighttime this is a cupboard i can't see into it's also just creating so mood true. what's best that. for the story yeah yeah, yeah. and it, ultimately every decision we ever make is always what's best for the story if it happens to look cool great but it it really is servicing the story and i yeah. always say this and that is the number one rule is like is the story benefit from the decision we made yes then mm -hmm. we made the right choice yeah no, that's really amazing advice. Yeah, I feel like smile hits all in those tenants, especially with what you guys are talking about, just taking it from, from, from pre to post, working collaboratively and understanding the genre that you're working with. But the genre, the genre itself does not define your actions. Mm -hmm. And I yeah. think that's really important. I've actually never heard anybody speak to, it, speak to it in that manner. Mm. So I really like that. Cool. From a lifestyle perspective, obviously filmmaking, you were talking a little bit about, you know, nights being hard, what do you both do to just keep up with your life outside of filmmaking? Do you have hobbies? Is there anything that you do for wellness? Um, try to. Try to maintain consistency, but I'm not the best at that. I need to get better at it. But yeah, like I, I, I'm starting, I'm getting a bit older now. You notice it. Like I, I try to eat more healthy like more, and you know, drink less and things like that. Um, work out when I can and try to keep a schedule there. I just go for a run, listen to music. That's, that's important. Hobbies, like I love the snow, I love the beach. I still skateboard a little bit, not that much these days, but just things like that. Hanging out with friends. I think friends and family and just hanging out is like really important because quite often you get sent away on films. Even if it's in Los Angeles, you're going to be doing, or at home, wherever you live, it's, it's going to be, um, they're going to be long days, so you don't really see people as much as what you'd like to. So I feel like when you're not working on long form, hang, like hanging out with people and, and just catching up and, you know, like I think that's really important. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I, it's not lost to me that it can be grueling um, and there are some issues there with like the sorts of conditions and hours and stuff we do. I think a lot of good people are listening and hopefully <laughs> it's something we keep pushing into because at the end of the day, we're making stories and entertainment like we love it and we live by it. But at the end of the day, like it's, you know, it's we only live once and, um, and, and that's, that's the thing is, yeah. is we're all passionate people and mm. passionate about what we do, but we also have to step back and make sure that that passion doesn't become all consuming yeah because it's real easy it can be because yeah. you we love what we do and you just want to give your best and before yeah. you know it it's like slept two hours a day for the yeah. last six months like it's it's it, it can be not healthy unless yeah. you actually set boundaries in that and it's true i think what charlie said is trying to build a consistency in your life is important it's like mm. i do this i do that i do that because then at least that consistency can stop things going off the yeah. rails you know for sure It'd be that you know hanging around with your family or you know always trying to if as much as you can have meals with your family or yeah. going for a jog or ride of the bike listening to that even sitting in and you know on the couch and watching, you know, a show or something that you always do with, with yeah. your friends or, or family, you know, just, just something that is not work. Yeah. And again, it's easier said than done. Like, you know, we, we've all, <laughs> we've all gone down this work, this work uh, rabbit hole, but you know, it's, it's trying to yeah set boundaries and be consistent on how you, um, how yeah. you try to, to give 
to the job, but also not take away too mm-hmm. much from your life. Yeah, that's really well said. You almost have to like guard yourself a little bit because you do want to have longevity in this career. And yeah. the last thing you want to do is burn yourself out early on or in the midst of something that you really care about or the next project that's coming up because it's not going to benefit anyone. Yeah, it's super yeah, easy it's to flame out. It is, yeah. And then, as you say, it's not going to benefit anybody. Like, you know, you go too hard on something, the the project's going to suffer. Um, so, you know, I, yeah. That's amazing. Well, yeah. what is some last bit of advice? Obviously, you both have had really amazing careers so far. And to anyone in the audience that watches this, that is just starting out and looks to you, what would you say? Um, the usual things that you hear time and time again, but it's true. It's just persistence and trying to build relationships and take opportunity when you get an opportunity and you know, when you've got one, most of the time, you know, when you've got one, just maximize it, like clean the mud off the tripod and like go and thread the film and just do it. Like, cause the, the relationships like are spawned from anything. Like you never know where something's going to go. Like, um, so it's that it's, and if you truly love it, you know, you're not just in, you know, if you, if you truly love it, then you're going to want to learn more about it naturally. And it's just like, there's so many tools there and you know even programs like this and stuff like that like it's just educate yourself um but essentially show up and yeah and just and hustle but try and have fun try and have fun that's the main thing if you're not having fun then reevaluate. like it doesn't necessarily need to be um you know a big pivot out of the industry it might be something within it that you're like oh i'm not really as enjoying directing as much i think i would love to be a production designer because that's yeah, and really there's, there's so about, many you know, jobs like, yeah. out in the world outside of the film industry yeah. where people just clock in and clock out and they can't wait for the day to finish or whatever. Yeah. You know, we are very fortunate that generally we're all very passionate and we, we want to do this. And so if you're starting out, you're probably passionate. So you want to embrace that and maintain that, you know. But, you know, I always say is like, Take every opportunity you can and learn as much as you can because you never know when something's going to be useful or you go, hang on, I'm really digging this and I would have never have thought I would like X because I didn't know it existed. Mm. So so not having a blinkered narrow field of this is what I'm going to do and this is how I'm going to do it because you don't know until you're on the ground and then just, you know, enjoy it. That's amazing. Well, gentlemen, I really appreciate your passion, everything that you did with Smile. It was awesome and I can't wait to see what's next. Charlie, I know you'll be back in the seat. Dave, yeah. you're a mentor at Filmmakers Academy, yeah. so everything that you've given us so far has been amazing. But if people would love to keep up with you, I know you're both on Instagram. Charlie, what is your Instagram? Uh, it's just Charlie Saroff, I think, underscore. Charlie underscore Saroff, or you can find, yeah, Charlie yeah. Saroff, you'll find it. <laughs> I should know this. Dave Cole, yeah. color. Yeah, nice. Instagram, yeah. Yeah, well, they're going to have a lot of amazing projects coming up and we can't wait to talk in the next Finding the Frame. Make sure to keep up on everything that they're doing. And Smile is still in theaters right now. It is definitely worth the watch. And if you can catch it in Dolby Cinema, that is the place to see it. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. For that. that was fun. Thanks. Yeah, anytime. Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And my wife and I have created this incredible resource called the Filmmakers Academy. And we'd love for you to download and rate our app. If you're a filmmaker, do yourself a favor and download the Filmmakers Academy app today. It's available wherever you get your apps. Most notably, the App Store, Google Play, Amazon App Store, and the Roku Channel Store. The app includes everything on the platform for All Access members and from content to community and coaching opportunities, everything you need to master your craft. So download the app 
And this is the most important part. Be sure to rate it. Rating us really helps us spread the word and enhance our rankings in this dedicated app store. So if you love what we're doing, this is a way to show it. Together, let's take your career as a filmmaker to the next level.